Hi folks, welcome to the Worldless Nation podcast. In this episode, we talk with American screenwriter John Orloff about the making of HBO's World War II miniseries, Band of Brothers. We also look ahead and discuss the making of another Second World War series which focuses on the US 8th Air Force and the battle for the skies over Europe. How did you come to be involved in the writing of this series with Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg? Uh, well, I was very, very lucky. Um, in 1999, um, I was a, a, a new screenwriter. Um, and Tom had read a script of mine uh, that he didn't want to be a part of, but he really liked the writing. And so he asked me to work on a script for this other movie that ended up never actually getting made. Um, But I would occasionally meet with him to talk about that movie. And I knew he was developing Band of Brothers. And um, I was really into World War II as a kid and young man and uh, always into history. And so I would always say, hey, uh, if you ever need a writer on Band of Brothers, let me know, I'm, I'm really into it. And he sort of at first sort of brushed me off uh, and sort of said he thought that there'd only be one writer on it and that that guy's already been chosen and blah, 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 blah. Anyway, at one of these meetings, uh, he suddenly turned to me after we were done talking about that other movie and he sort of said, well, hey, you want to write for Band of Brothers? And I was like, "Uh, sure. Great. Do you want to write the D-Day episode? And I was like, uh, sure. And that's how I started writing on Band of Brothers. Where were you when you first heard about the project? And what were your initial thoughts to it? I have absolutely no memory of how I first heard about Band of Brothers. Um, I mean, like everybody else, I was a huge admirer of Saving Private Ryan. Uh, and this was only a couple of years after uh, Private Ryan had, had been made. Um, yeah, I, it's funny. I have no recollection of how I first heard about Band of Brothers. How long did the series, or at least your part of it, take to write? Um, well, that's slightly complicated because uh, we all sort of came back and forth. There were ultimately seven writers. Um and uh, from start to finish, about two years, um, from 99 really until, you know, part of 2001 when we were still editing and making changes, uh, I was part of it. Uh, the actual writing, I want to say eight months, maybe nine months, because that process was, was complicated uh, because... We all did our own research um, and we could write with Tom's permission and Stephen's permission. We could sort of, sort of write whatever we wanted to within a certain, we were sort of given time frames. So when Tom said, do you want to do the D-Day episode? That was literally all the direction I had. Um, we had what's called a Bible but uh, the Bible was, was normally in television. A Bible is sort of a, 
an outline that you sort of follow. Um, in this case, the Bible was more a, a Bible of what happened to Easy Company historically month by month. So there was nothing that said, for example, believe it or not, it seems weird in hindsight, but I was the one who decided that the D-Day episode should entirely be from Winter's point of view. That wasn't a direction. Or in episode nine, uh, which is the other episode that I wrote, um, I decided it should be about Nixon, and I figured out what it should be about. So the, the, the process was actually quite lengthy. Um, and it started with, with me and Bruce McKenna. I think it was just me and Bruce. Um, went to one of the 101st reunions. I think it was in Denver, that one. In 98, I think. I think in the end of 98, uh, Bruce and I went. And by then I had already figured out that I wanted episode to do two to be entirely about winters, um, as opposed to cutting to other characters and seeing what everybody was doing on D-Day. Anyway, so that's when I got to meet um, Compton at, at, in Denver. I think summer of 98, I want to say, but I could be totally wrong. So that's when I got to meet the guys for the first time, all of survivors of, of Breakor Manor, um, except for Winters. Winters doesn't come, did not come to those, um, those reunions. He, he would only come once every 10 or 20 years. Anyway, so I met Compton and Lipton, Garnier, Malarkey, trying to think of who else. Popeye Win was still a lot. Yeah, Popeye. That's six, right? I, I don't. Whoever was still alive from Breakcore, and I just spent three days basically interviewing them and getting the sort of Rashomon sort of different points of view that did not add up and. Um, uh, were different than Ambrose's book. And then I talked to, to, to Dick Winters um, over the phone quite quite a lot. We didn't meet till, I think, later. But over the phone, we spoke a great deal. Um, so it was a very long process, you know. Um, I went very deep into the, into the Battle of Breakor. Um, and there's mistakes, actually, in Ambrose's book that he probably doesn't, never knew were mistakes. And there's actually mistakes in the episode now that I have since learned are mistakes. Anyway, that was a pretty lengthy answer. <laughs> it's not a problem at all. Obviously you said you mentioned uh, you've met a few of the surviving veterans. What were they like to speak to? Were they quite open, forthcoming? What were they like as characters? It was really, intimidating and fascinating so it was 98 and so they're they're mostly in their their early 70s i want to say you know roughly and there was a lot of alcohol i mean these guys really drank drank me under the table um and you know these settings were really the only chance these guys took in their lives to talk about the war. They had never talked about it with their families. Uh, they didn't talk about it with their other friends. 
in fact, when, when we were making, when they were making the documentary, We Stand Alone Together, which is where those interviews come from that are in the beginning of each episode, when those interviews were being shot, uh, often the um, family would ask to come and uh, listen to the interviews being recorded because they had never heard the stories ever. And, you know, I'm talking about a 45-year-old or 50-year-old child of one of these guys. So they didn't talk about these, these things that happened to them during the war ever. So these reunions were their opportunity, in a sense, to sort of let it all out and be with people who had shared these really difficult, awful experiences that these guys um, went through. Because remember, in a particularly pre-Saving Private Ryan world, the general public didn't really understand in some ways how brutally awful um, World War II was on our guys. Um, you know, we were still kind of in a, the last great World War II movies were made in the 60s, one could argue, and there's still a lot of romanticized characters. So, it was, it was intense, you know, listening to these stories. Uh, you know, Malarkey broke down in front of me um, talking about, I can't remember what at this point, just remembering somebody dying, you know, as, as though it were the day before. So they were very open, actually, with us. You know, they were, <laughs> they were often a little tipsy. You know, I, I'm not going to lie. And, and it, it, you know, they were tipsy. They were ready to talk about it. And especially, you know, Babe and Garnier, they were great talkers. They loved to talk about this stuff. And so they were very gracious, very open. You know, it, it was interesting. You know, over the years, you know, they didn't tell us everything. They did not, there were uh, certain things that, that were actually lied about um, that I later learned the, the actual history was a little different than, than they might have told us um, about a few things. Uh, but it was really great. Did you personally work with and grow close to any of these veterans in particular? And did you keep in contact with them beyond the series? I did with Dick um, Winters. Um, Winters and I um, sort of became friends and remained in contact um, for most of, of, of his life, the rest of his life, until he sort of withdrew from, from public when, when he was diagnosed with Parkinson's. But, but uh, he and I were pretty tight. Um, he, you have to remember, I mean, for a lot of reasons, but, but episode two in particular is really important to Dick and his, his whole self-definition as a human being, because that was such a monumental experience to have gone through and to have accomplished. And, you know, I think he himself saw his life as two halves before break Corps and D-Day and after D-Day. And so that meant he was giving me, in a sense, like the most important thing about himself. You know, he was entrusting me with, with telling 
this story. So, you know, we had many long, deep conversations. And, and then when I decided that I wanted to write, epi- well, when I was asked to write episode nine, they had already started shooting. And I had already seen uh, some of the dailies from episode two. And I would, had been on set for all of episode two. So I'd seen how great Ron Livingston was as Nixon. So I wanted episode nine to be about Nixon. And um, since Nixon was dead and Nixon's widow uh, was his widow after the war, I think he married her in the 60s. She didn't really know a ton about his war experiences. So in order to tell episode nine, Dick was really my main source on that. And in fact, in episode nine, when Nixon goes into the German widow's house and the dog yaps at her and he feels so guilty he leaves, that actually happened to Dick. That happened to Winters, that experience. You know, so Dick was telling me all these things. And so, yeah, I became really close with Winters. In fact, one of my prized possessions is sitting here in my office is a letter from him in uh, 2003, uh, congratulating me on the birth of my son. And it's just a beautiful, sweet letter from Dick to me. So he and I became very close. The other guys, I didn't maintain a relationship really with them post the show um, because I didn't really have as much. I mean, I talked to Dick for years and years and years, you know, once a month and in the middle of Band of Brothers, you know, Every couple days, um, he and I were in contact, way more so than Dick with the other writers, with the exception of Eric Jenderson, who was the first writer um, that was on the show and and wrote that Bible. But the other writers didn't spend as much time with with Dick as Eric and I did, because their episodes weren't... Eric also wrote Crossroads, episode five, which was very centered around winters. So the other guys didn't get to know Winters nearly like Eric and I did. But they had their own relationships, you know? So, you know, I'm pretty sure Bruce was pretty tight with Randleman um, and Lipton, I think. He he had a tighter relationship because he wrote the first draft of episode four, which was about Bull, mostly. And so I think Bruce got pretty tight with Bull. I don't know if, if Max really, who wrote episode three. I don't know what his relationships were like with the guys. Max was living in Paris when we made the show. He doesn't anymore. He lives in New York. But but so he was really like, he didn't come to any of the um, uh, veteran um, reunions. So I, I don't even think he met any of the guys until the Emmys. So yeah. So yeah, Dick, Dick and I stayed friends. How many writers were involved in the show? Um, seven but it's all rather complicated. I'm the only one who, who wrote two episodes by myself. All the other episodes have double writers mostly, like episode four was written by Bruce and then rewritten by Graham. You know, episode one, Tom ended up writing a lot of, Eric wrote, other writers worked on that didn't get credit. You know, uh, Bruce wrote six on his own. I mean, everybody like wrote one on their own, 
And then there's just a whole big mishmash of rewriting on, on troubled episodes. Episode four was always a troubled episode. Episode one was always a troubled episode. Episode eight was always a troubled episode in terms of just writing it and it needing to be rewritten and rewritten and tweaked and changed. Whereas episode two was pretty much, I turned in my first draft and that was it. They were gonna shoot it with, with one change, Stephen. Uh, it didn't originally uh, in the first draft. They're singing in the um, C-47s en route. Um, they're singing like "Gory Gory, What a Hell, Way to Die," or I don't know some other paratrooper song. I can't remember what I had in there. And um, and then they slowly get quiet as the reality is is hitting them. And uh, and then the first flak guns are heard. But Stephen didn't like that, so. Uh, we took out the song and uh, that was kind of it. That episode was just fine. Episode three, same thing, as I recall, Max pretty much delivered a first draft. That's pretty much what you see. Episode four was always a problem, not because of anybody's fault, but, but just some things are harder to dramatize than other. So there were seven of us and, and it's funny, two of us lived in LA, one in Paris, one in Carmel, and one in Sausalito. So uh, we only spoke by telephone. There, there was no, you know, it, it was not written like a TV show is normally written. It was written like 10 little movies, totally independent of each other. You've touched on there about the, the dramatization. Obviously, there's always a fine line between fact and dramatization for TV. How did you balance this and how close to the truth are all the events portrayed in the series? Well, it, it, it really depends. Um, that's always sort of the, the really tricky issue in, in writing any piece of nonfiction or something that's based on nonfiction and, and, and dramatizing it um, rather than just reenacting it. And um, dramatizing it, you sort of have to get into this whole other thinking process, um, which is you have to remember you're trying to convey a reality in a compressed amount of time. And in order to do that, by necessity to do it well, to give you, the audience, the most concrete, realistic, experience of that group of men in order to actually give you that experience we have to change things in order to keep you not confused or compressing time or so so we talk a lot about the emotional truth versus the literal truth so like i said before dick winters actually uh, broke into the German Frau uh, widow's house and was humiliated by doing so and, and left. And I gave that to, to Nixon. Um, so it's not the literal truth of what happened, but it's the emotional truth of what happened. And it, 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 it has a dramatic impact being in, in, in the episode. So, you know, to, to answer your wider question of, of what's truth and what's not, you know, it's it's all going to depend on the episode and the writer. I can't even tell you um, 
you know, specific things in other episodes. I, I can certainly tell you in, in two and nine. Um, two is really accurate um, historically. Um, nine less so because quite frankly, um, nobody would talk about the concentration camp. So it's only a paragraph or two in, in Ambrose's book. And that's not enough to make a, a, a 90 or 60 minutes of, of television. So, you know, I, I interviewed all the guys that ended up there. Um, but most of them wouldn't talk to me about it. I mean, literally, they just, it was so horrible for them to remember. They just really didn't want to even remember the memory. It was so horrible. So I couldn't really get them to talk about it. Dick, I could. And so I talked a lot with him about episode nine. But, you know, Nixon wasn't alive to interview. So I'm trying to project how Nixon must have felt at that time period of the war. And, and I'm really using Nixon as a mouthpiece almost for me. And what do I want to say in this episode? So that one's more dramatic than all 100% truth. Same with episode six. As I recall, and I could be wrong, there was very little about the nurse in the real history. She's pretty much inspired by history character, if I recall correctly. I could, I could be wrong. Maybe there was a nurse there, but they, we have no idea whether she and Roe ever met, something like that. So that's another example. But as I said, I know episode two is, is incredibly accurate. Like I said, even more accurate than the book um, in some regards. So it really depends uh, on the episode and, and what we're trying to, to show. You know, uh, as I recall, episode five is really, really uh, accurate crossroads. You did mention, though, earlier about more information has come out about Braycore Manor since the filming. Let's just say that, that the, the, the night of before the battle, it's not entirely accurate, the episode. What, what, what our guys did that night, I have since learned other things happened. When it was released, the HBO miniseries was an international sensation, and it certainly was one factor in further igniting my own passion uh, in the history of the Second World War. Why do you think this was, and why does the Band of Burroughs series have such an enduring legacy to this day? It's a hard one to answer, but I, I can say that, you know, the story is amazing. The production is crazy, impressive. It, it, the men's stories are so inherently amazing and fantastic. Everybody who worked on it, you know, did it for the purest of reasons and, and trying to get it right, and, and I mean, from everybody who worked on it, uh, it, it was just remarkable how dedicated everybody was to getting even the smallest details right. And then 
you know, I think a, a, a very sort of underappreciated point is Steven Spielberg insisted that the show be filmed and uh, uh, shown um, in widescreen. Now, we take it for granted that everything's in widescreen in 2018. And so Band of Brothers looks like it could have been made yesterday because it's in widescreen and it's really technically um, impressive, both uh, sound and picture. But in 2000, when it was shot, almost no television was widescreen. Um, even The Sopranos, which was made after Band of Brothers, is not widescreen. Neither is The Wire. You know, two other HBO shows that were that are unbelievably brilliant and made in exactly the same time. And as great as they are, when you put them on, they're a square and they look dated just because of that square. You know, forget the content. Whereas Steven insisted to HBO that we make it in widescreen. And like I said, show it in widescreen when, I don't know, 90% of televisions would have to put a black bar on the top and bottom. So I think that really helps it, believe it or not. Um, because when you put it on, you know, if you're 15 years old and you've never seen it before, it might look like it was made a year ago. You know, it, 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 there's a timeless quality to it that I think um, is amazing, actually. And we're really lucky. You must have, as well as getting obviously very close to the veterans you worked with, you must have got similarly quite close to a few of the actors during this experience. Uh, do you still keep in contact with them today? And cause I've seen quite a few of them are actively involved in the World War II community and paying tribute and remembering this remarkable generation. So it's obviously had quite a profound effect on themselves. Absolutely. Uh, yes, we do all stay in contact. Um, there's actually often, almost yearly, a, a, a barbecue at um, usually Cudlitz's uh, house uh, in L.A. The guys, the, 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 you know, the, the writers actually had very little interaction with the actors because they, they were shooting in London or outside of London in Hatfield. And as I said before, we were all over the world, us writers, and, and our work was kind of done by the time, by the time shooting came along. I, I, there were some exceptions to that. Um, Eric Bork was, was there for the whole shoot to sort of supervise writing when necessary. And then I went over for episode two because there were some problems with the script um, and so I was there for the whole shoot of two, which was great because then I could really make sure a break or in particular was, was being done accurately. The actors, you know, they went through this intense boot camp and then the shoot was like a year long. It was like 10 months or something. And it was pretty grueling. So they really got to know each other. And, and then that sort of added bonus of working on this incredibly moving, you know, whatever you want to call it. it we all had this common sort of experience of, of meeting these real guys and trying to honor them. So anyway, they're all still friends. Um, we keep in contact from Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And, uh, you know, I bumped into Damien up here in upstate New York, a hundred miles away from the city of all places. Um, 
you know, so, so yeah, we all, we all stay in contact. It's a really, it's a really special thing. Unlike anything else I've ever been a part of or, or heard of, it's just a real special group of guys. Can you take us behind the scenes to the filming um, of episode two? You said you traveled over to England, you were on set for that. Can you just give us a feel yeah. of what it was like and what happened? Yeah, it was pretty pretty fantastic. HBO leased um, uh, an airfield called Hatfield Airfield, I think, and it's it's just outside of London, and and they rented the whole property, so it had various buildings already pre-built, hangars, an office building, blah 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 blah. So the hangars became. Well, some of them became sound stages, like uh, all of um, Bastogne, uh, episode six or seven. I can't remember which one. The night battle was all shot on a hangar inside, interior. All those pine trees exploding was on a hangar. Another hangar had a, a C-47, just the fuselage built, put on gimbals. Um, for the the para, you know, for the dropping scenes and the scenes on D-Day, uh, so they had this whole C-47 built, and then another hangar would be wardrobe, and you'd go into this giant airplane hangar, and all it was was thousands of 1940s civilian clothing, and, you know. So, and then you go to another hangar, and it was vehicles. So you'd see all these like there were a lot of um. I think a lot of our Tigers were, a lot of German tanks were redressed Soviet, you know, uh, Cold War era tanks. And then, you know, we had the 88s or the 105s. I can't remember what they were. They were really 105s, but originally they were thought to be 88s on Breakcore. And it was just amazing. And then they were building Carrington. And they were, I mean, almost all of Bayon was shot in England, with the exception of uh, some scenes from episode 10. Um, but everything else was shot in England, and most of it on this, this lot at Hatfield, um, including uh, episode 2 and Breakcore. So I, we, I can't remember exactly where the Breakcore scene was staged, but it was outside, and, you know, they had the hedgerows, and, you know, it was weeks, weeks of... of of uh, shooting in the field, and it was a blast. <laughs> you know, and, and I was a, I was one of those kids who you know loved to dress up in in a uniform and at nine or eight years old uh, play World War II with my friends. So it was it was pretty much like that. It was a blast. What were your personal highlights from working on this series? It's become so ingrained in my own life and sort of my own sense of self that I, it is the highlight of my life in a sense. It's, it, it, I, I don't know how to answer that. You know, it, it is, everything flowed for me from Band of Brothers. I mean, as I said, it was really my first job and it, you know, gave me a career. Uh, and all these relationships and and so it's I just <laughs> its impact on my life is more than just a, one or two great memories or a story about being with with Winters or Lipton. It's 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 everything to me.
You mentioned earlier, obviously, the importance of the series to everyone involved and the reasons behind them doing it, that um, importance of trying to keep the history and the memories alive. Do you have any family members or relatives who served in the American forces during the Second World War? I do not. Um, and in fact, I know that. I've done the, the research. None of my family served in, in, uh, in World War II. So it's all, all just, uh, I guess, admiration. But interestingly, um, it has inspired my son to serve, and he uh, is hoping for a career in the Navy. Well, I wish him all the very best. Thank you. During an interview at the Chalk Valley History Festival, um, Damien Lewis mentioned that the assault on the, the artillery position at Breakwell Manor, portrayed in your episode Day of Days, is shown at West Point and Sandhurst to this day as a textbook example of how a smaller force can successfully assault and overcome a larger defensive position. Had you heard this before? Yeah, yeah. Uh, not, uh, not the Sandhurst part, but um, the West Point. Yeah, and I, I've spoken to officers, and uh, they've shown it. They show the video now. Uh, they show the episode. In, in some of these schools, in military schools, um, which is pretty cool. And the episode is, I mean, you, you know, I'm really proud of the episode because as, as I told you, um, when I wrote it, you know, I interviewed every single survivor. I made a map before I wrote it for myself and I really broke it down correctly. And then the woman who edited the episode, who was brilliant and won an Emmy for the editing, literally just followed the script, you know, shot by shot. And uh, it's, it's the only thing that's wrong in it is time compression because the real battle was two or three, four hours. I can't remember, but it's, you know, it's the highlights and it's, it's accurate. So it's, it's pretty humbling. Currahy has become synonymous with the men of Easy Company and the other members of the 101st Airborne who served with the Screaming Eagles during the Second World War. Why was this mountain in the state of Georgia so significant to these men, and what symbolic meaning did it have to them? It was where they bonded. It was where they became a unit. It, it was the place that they were shown that they can do more than they thought they could. You know, it's, it's the symbol of how they became who they became. So it was incredibly important to them, and, and so thus it became incredibly important to us and, and, and the show. Band of Brothers, however, is not the only Second World War-related series you've been involved with. I gather you're currently working on an adaptation of Donald Elmer's book Masters of the Air, which explores the US 8th Air Force role during the conflict. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? I, I can. It's a little bit of a slower process than, than Band or, or the Pacific um, for multiple reasons, not the least of which is, in, in this case, at the moment, I'm the only writer on it. So that takes, takes one writer a lot longer to write 800 pages than it does seven writers to write 700 pages. So there's been that. And it's, yes, it's an enormous project, uh, bigger in scale than Band or the Pacific. 
it's we we I can say a little bit about it. We we don't focus on the entire eighth, and there's been rumors that the show is called the Mighty Eighth. I can tell you that's not the title. It's not going to be the title. And uh, we focused on um, mostly on one particular bomber group that um, is highlighted in, in Don's book, which is the Bloody Hundredth. Uh, and we focus in particular on um, several real guys, including Gail Clevin, uh, who was a pilot, his best friend, John Egan, who was a B-17 pilot, and then one of their a replacement called uh, Robert Rosie Rosenthal, who went on to become one of the most famous pilots from the whole eighth. And, and so we, 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 we sort of focus on that one group and their experiences. How long have you mentioned earlier, obviously, since Band of Brothers, this has been something that's very close to your heart, this project. How long have you been working on it for? For Masters, uh, off and on, because uh, it's been sort of interrupted by people's schedules and events, but off and on for five years. Um, it's certainly been, you know, my baby and... and it's a little bit different. It's been a very different process than band for a few reasons. One of them is most obviously the guys I'm writing about are not alive. So I can't call them up and say, Hey, remember when you were doing this on this mission? Can you tell me more about that? I can't do that this time. Uh, and then it's also a little different because Don's book is not about the hundredth. It's about a whole bunch of other stuff but the miniseries is about the hundredth. So in some ways I've had to go deeper than Don's book in this one little piece of the war. So it's, it's required even more original research than band did and band had a lot of it. Um, and I know the Pacific did too, uh, but this one's even more. So, uh, but it's my happy place and uh, I'm loving it more than I've, I've loved anything, in fact. I mean, it's like, you know, Band of Brothers was a once-in-a-lifetime experience, except it's turning out maybe it's not. <laughs> maybe I'm having it a second time. You mentioned, obviously, not being able to, to speak to the veterans. Has there been any opportunity at all to speak to anyone directly related to that bomber group? Yes, and in fact, I went to uh, their reunion. They still have reunions as well. And uh, my son and I went to their reunion last year. Uh, it's mostly family now. Um, there were some pilots and crew members and ground crew members there, but probably a dozen or so. And then uh, a couple hundred family members of other people. So, you know, I get to talk to them. Um, there, there are some videotaped interviews of these guys. Uh, you know, I have all sorts of ways to find out uh, what was going on. Also, interestingly enough, as you and your listeners probably know, the Air Force, uh, the American Air Force took incredible records. Uh, they had a really sophisticated PR machine at the time, and it was a, it was a mathematical war, and they knew it. I mean, there are specific the bombing was a mathematical thing. You know, how many tons of bombs does it take to destroy the Western Wish factory? As a result, the records are amazing. 
So I can go in online and discover what bomber crews were on what mission that I'm focusing on. And I can actually then extrapolate which bomber is going down how. And I am accurate to almost every single B-17 you see go down. Meaning it's not just, oh, bomber on the left goes, you know, Gale is piloting and the bomber on the left, you know, blows up. No, 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 no. I know what the bomber was on the left. I know how it really got shot down and I'm going to explain it to you. So if it got down, shot down by flak, I show it got shot down by flak. It's shot down by an ME 109. That's what you see. I sort of figure that's a way to sort of honor the real men that died on that mission by showing their death. And um, it's pretty, pretty gruesome. Uh, Kirk Sadusky, who, who, works for Tom at Playtone and has uh, for 20 some odd years uh, and is sort of one of the key players on these historical pieces that, that Tom does. Um, Kirk and I, Kirk was at that same 100th Bomber Group reunion last year and he gave a little talk to them, explain to them where we were in the process and how it was going. And I was there to interview some people and et cetera. Anyway, so as he was giving the, the thing, he said, you know, when, when we worked on the Pacific, um, Kirk said, you know, I used to think that the hardest job for an American serviceman in World War II was being a Marine in the Pacific. And he said, now I know better. But the hardest job for an American soldier in World War II was a a member of the Eighth Air Force because the it, it was it was a tough war, the air war, and and hopefully we're all going to learn a lot about it in Masters of the Air. Well, I certainly look forward to seeing that when it comes out in due course, and especially you look back. We touched on obviously Band of Brothers, the CGI for the time then was stunning. When you look at that second episode, they're parachuting out, and you see the flak coming up, is remarkable for then. And to imagine what the CGI that you'll be able to incorporate now. Um, it's going to be fantastic to see that. Hopefully. And um, yeah, yeah, it's a big scale. We're big, big, big air battles. So we're going we're gonna to need some good CGI. Out of interest, you touched on uh, there's a few surviving ground crew. Is, is the series going to then touch on the team as a whole? So obviously it's going to be heavily influenced about looking at the guys that flew the planes. But will it touch on obviously the guys that help keep those planes functioning? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's it, 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 one of the things that's very interesting about these these air battles uh, that that Don talks about in his book is, you know, by let's say mid forty four, we're sending the Allies, well, specifically the Americans, um, are sending over a thousand bombers plus two hundred, three hundred, maybe maybe eight hundred bombers at that point, seven hundred bombers. Two or three hundred fighters, and then the Germans would come up with five or six hundred fighters, and that is just the spear point of the battle, because there's also a hundred thousand people in England that were required to get those thousand airplanes on our side in the air, and then there's hundreds of thousands of Germans working on AA guns and, and radar. And I mean, it's a huge battle. 
we're only it's only the tip that we're we're seeing in the air. Um, so yes, the, the 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 ground crews, the medical staff, the supports it, it's all part of a larger tapestry of a story. How closely will Don be working with you on the project? Is it quite a close-knit team? Yes, very. Um, uh, Don and I actually went over to England two years ago together uh, to, to uh, run around uh, East Anglia and um, specifically when we went out to Thorpe Abbots, which is where the 100th was based near Norfolk and uh, hung out around there and, and did some digging around. And Don has been reading the scripts and, and giving notes. And so he's been very much part of the process, actually more than, than Stephen Ambrose was. Um, I, I didn't meet Ambrose or talk to him, quite frankly. I, I never spoke to him or met him until uh, the premiere of Band of Brothers, physically. You know, I mean, at the premiere, the first time they showed, they showed it in, uh, in um, uh, Normandy in 2001. So a very different experience. And, and my understanding is Ambrose didn't really talk with any of the writers on band until we were done. But uh, Don's been really through it the whole time. What was that premiere like in Normandy for you? Oh, it, it was pretty amazing. It was June, it was D-Day actually, it was June 6th, um, 2001. So it was pre-9-11. Um, and HBO uh, flew out cast and crew and all the veterans and their families, and they put us up in Paris for five days. And then we all took a train out to, I think it was Utah Beach, or was it Omaha? I can't remember. It was Utah. Uh, and, and they had big tent built there and... Uh, it was it was quite exciting. Um, also, because Spears came, uh, Spears wouldn't talk to any of us. Ronald Spears wouldn't talk to Ambrose either. By the way, just did not want to talk about it to anybody, and he wasn't going to come to the premiere. But uh, Dick called him up and, and convinced him uh, that he wouldn't be arrested. Uh, actually, is what he convinced him. He was worried he would be arrested for war crimes. How did? How did Dick manage to uh, get around? How do, I can't even imagine how that conversation would have gone. <laughs> yeah, I know. You got very quiet. <laughs> it's true, though. He was worried um, that he would be arrested for, for what happened on D-Day. Um, I, I, I presumably Dick convinced him that wasn't going to happen. And um, then he came. Did he speak to you the then? the first time I got to meet Spears. No, I just met him. He was not interested in Hollywood at all. Uh, I don't know. Maybe he talked to Tom and Stephen, but but uh, I just shook his hand and and that was it. He wanted to hang out. He was hanging out with Lipton and Compton and and Winters and uh, those guys. How did the actor who played him then manage to? Because obviously, quite a lot of the actors, obviously with the veterans that were still alive that they were portraying, obviously I gather work quite closely with them. And but obviously, if Spears essentially shut them out how did they yeah. manage to form the character i honestly don't know um maybe he talked to dick i don't know i mean that's how i got to know nixon was through dick 
you know, Richard Winters telling me about Lewis Nixon is how I got a better sense of Lewis Nixon. So maybe Matthew Settle talked to Dick because 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 Winters was very open to talk to anybody who wanted to talk to him. He certainly seemed uh, a remarkable character. And then some. He really was uh, one of the most amazing human beings I've ever met. No, no question about it. And, you know, he, he's a tough, he was a tough guy. He, he, tough in a, I mean, in the, he didn't take any nonsense tough. That's what I mean, you know, um, from anybody. Yeah, he was a really, he, he was an amazing guy. Perfect. Well, I will, I mean, that was fantastic. I really appreciate, you know, your time for that and a real insight into the making of Band of Brothers and obviously your part in it. My pleasure. Really is appreciated. It was fun. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Next up, we'll be chatting with historian and author Neil Barber about the 6th Airborne Division's role in Normandy during 1944.